This is Truth Encounter, and today's program exposes an enemy that by stealth will seek to rob you of your belongings, your emotional stability, and your retirement. Let's join Dave Wurtzen, our study leader, as he talks about some of the promises for instant money he has received in the mail and what Deuteronomy says about resisting the temptation. They promised me the most incredible Christmas that our family has ever, ever had. They also promised me that I will not have to pay anything until March. How many of you have received some letters a little bit like that? They come in many different ways. I mean, from all over the country and all different banks and all different ways of doing it. But the basic deal is we've got a special deal. If you will become in debt to us, we will set you free. Now, I'm so glad that I married a woman who is not tempted at all by those letters. She throws those in the trash can repeatedly. But unlike Mary, who would never in the world ever get in debt, there's something deep inside of Dave Wurtzen that says, I know that I can figure it out, and it'll be much easier to pay in March, and this would really be something that we could use right now. And so there's this pull deep in my soul that can begin to make me want to use that plastic. We want to talk today about debtors, slavery, and freedom. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, if you'll turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 15, Moses is so concerned for young couples. Because I believe that probably one of the biggest temptations comes when you're first married and you're just beginning to get your household going and it seems that just about everybody and his brother wants to sign you up. And there's so many things that you need and so few funds to be able to do it with that that temptation to go in debt can be very, very strong. And so one of the things we want to talk about today is the slavery and the danger that can come from that incredible thing called compound interest when it's working against you. But what about those times when some real pressure, struggles come economically, and you really need to have some funds? Maybe you need some funds for medical bills. What about... um, needing to make some down payments on a home so that you can get going in a non-rent market and begin to be able to get some investments that if you were to put money consistently in a home rather than putting them consistently into rent, maybe 12 years, you would have really increased your investment. What about some of those needs when you need to go in to borrow money? Is that wrong? What about when tragedy can strike and there's some tremendous health needs and there's a need to be able to get something for one of your children? Maybe they they desperately need to have a special brace for their legs. In other words, it's very easy when we talk about debt and we talk about slavery and we talk about freedom. It's very easy for different teachers to make us say, this is the way to do it. And we come up with principles. Don't ever owe anybody anything. Don't ever go in debt. It's always wrong to go in debt. 
And so a businessman, for example, that, that gathers together investors and he gets them to pool funds so that he can make a business venture, which all of our economic system in the United States is built upon, a system that's produced the greatest prosperity the world has ever known, under the principle thou shalt never owe anybody anything, the truth of the matter is that there's many of you that are listening to my voice right now, you would have never made it as a young businessman or woman if no one could ever owe anybody anything because you gathered investment capital to be able to go out on a venture that you believed in and you've been able to pay some of those people back tenfold, fiftyfold, sometimes a hundredfold, sometimes a millionfold. In fact, Sam Walton did that with an idea for a little store that would be kind of an all-convenience store, kind of a nook in the market in a small town that, that was a little bit distant from the big city malls. And he had this idea over there in Arkansas, I think I'm going to put in this store. And people joined him and invested money and he pooled capital and got those stores going. And now those people have multiplied their fortunes again and again and again. So the Bible saying that all of that is wrong. One thing that I love about the Word of God is that as you begin to read it in its totality, and you begin to listen to your daddy's voice in the Word of God, that you find out that he has incredible skill in the way that he teaches us. And there's great balance. And he doesn't lock us and it says absolutely this, absolutely that. Many times he gives us a feel for things. He teaches us principles. As we left our discussion the last time we were together, we were talking about the end of chapter 14, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28. Let's look at those verses, because it will lead us right into the discussion of chapter 15. And always remember, when you look at the chapter divisions in your Bible, that they were not in the original text. They were added much later. So be sure you flow from one chapter to the next, and don't do what I sometimes do, have a major break. Because many of these ideas flow one into the other. In fact, many times, the lead thought that needs to move into the next section is introduced in the previous paragraph. So let's pick it up at the end of chapter 14. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites who have no allotment, that is that the, the Levites were those, the priestly class that were given the responsibility of teaching the children of Israel throughout the different cities. There were Levitical cities throughout the entire Holy Land. They were not given a parcel of land. They were not given an inheritance among all the rest of Israel. They were dependent upon the rest of the people to give graciously to them so that they would be sustained. It says there was another group that was going to need this gracious sustenance. There would be fatherless and the widows and the aliens that were among them. In other words, people that came across the border. Maybe they had to flee from their homeland because of, of persecution or something like that. And Moses is very careful to instruct the children of Israel to treat all these individuals in their society that were less fortunate, that didn't have a landed wealth, that didn't have the means of sustaining themselves. They were every single, every three years, every time that, that triple rolled around, they were to take the tithe of that year. 10% of their income, and they were to make it available to the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows. Now, last time we talked about this area of tithing, I stressed that under the New Covenant, there's no objective external law 
that tells New Testament believers that they must give 10%. Now, what I was stressing, in fact, in interacting with some of you about that during these last few days, I want to clarify something. Some of you have made strong commitments that you're going to tithe. In other words, you have realized you're redeemed by grace. Your salvation is totally a free gift. And in expression of your love for him, in the joy of knowing that he's in your heart, you have chosen as a principle in your life, you have said in the old covenant they gave 10%, then how much more under the new covenant should I do at least that? Not because I have to, but because I want to express love. And that's why I love the interaction and I want to encourage all of you to feel free Interact with me. Talk with me. I believe that that's the way that we grow in our understanding of the Word of God. When I'm speaking to somebody, it's going to take something that I say and and easily misconstrue it. Sometimes I do it right while I'm teaching. I push something too hard and I lose the balance of God's Word. And so I really want you to know that one of the greatest joys for me as a teacher is to be able to stir you in your heart so that we can talk together about it. And this brother made it just a very strong principle. Dave, I'm not trying to get in with God, but it's a great joy in my life to be able to express my love for God through this principle of the tithe. And I would encourage many of you to adopt that expression of love. In fact, Dr. Ryrie, when I was a little boy, taught me a principle. He says, don't give 10% because it's too easy to get locked in to 10%. It's too easy to, to, to fall over and to start to feel that, well, now I've given my due to the Lord. Instead, he said, give 9% or 11% so you can get off the dime because as you grow in your prosperity and you grow in your blessing, then you can give more in expression of love. And we're going to give you some of the things that we need to give our tithes and our offerings, our blessings to the Lord for. And so I never want to communicate to any of you that under the new covenant that I am in any way demeaning the tithe. I am saying that it's not like the Old Testament law where you would be forced in your society under your country of Israel. It would be like a tax. The the Internal Revenue does not ask me if I would like to graciously give to them on April 15th. And neither did the Levitical priesthood under the Old Testament law. But the New Testament has set us free to express our love. And so knowing that we can never earn favor with God through performance, let's be careful, though, not to to switch into licentiousness so that we're not disciplined in the area of giving. And so these principles under the old covenant become wise, skillful means for us to express our love to the Savior. Now, in chapter 15, the writer goes on from this discussion of graciously giving to meet the needs of the needy in your culture to talk about a problem that often arose. In the ancient economy, if you used plastic too much, now they didn't have plastic, but, but borrowing and becoming indebted to somebody has been going on for thousands upon thousands of years. One of the things that could happen is that if you got terribly in debt to somebody, then you would try to work that off. And sometimes we're going to find out, according to this chapter, that that working it off could become so powerful and that you could not make it so that you would sell yourself to somebody and you would become their servant. 
And you would pay off your debt by becoming their servant. Now, one of the things I want you to notice in this chapter 15 is the relationship between indebtedness and slavery. In fact, it'll be a great caution for you before you choose to go into debt to anyone. If you'll remember this principle, indebtedness can lead to slavery. There's a connection. Proverbs brings that out. It says that those who are in debt will become the servant of those that lend them the money. That's always true. And this chapter brings it out. But one thing it does stress, though, is that in a culture, all cultures will have a tendency to move towards those that are gifted with the money, those that are gifted with the finances, those that understand the way interest rates work. The truth of the matter is that the average person in this audience intellectually understands the way interest rates work. You understand what compounded daily means. You understand it intellectually, but if you're like me, you don't understand it emotionally. What you do is you think in terms of, can I make the payment? That's the way you evaluate your finances and you never look at What is the full amount that I'm going to pay? So what starts to happen, because most people don't understand the way interest works and the way indebtedness works, they tend to start burying themselves deeper and deeper and deeper. When I was selling books, I had this really powerfully driven home to me. Because I would be in about 50 homes a day, and you get a good cross-section of a society. You know what I found out? I found out that those who had nice homes, those who had nice cars, those who um, had their kids dressed with nice clothes, it was very hard to sell them a book. You know what? I was in some homes where they had dirt floors, their kids were going around just with their diapers on, and you could sell them 50 books. And interesting enough, there would be a nice, beautiful color television sitting in the midst of the dirt floor on payment. The food wasn't too good, but they had a TV. And by the way, I did not sell them 50 books, lest we have some ethical problems. I I, I said, no, I can't sell you. But it was easy to get people like that. In fact, some of the companies I worked with would say, man, those are the people you want to look for. And it illustrates this principle that what starts to happen in the culture, the haves start to have a lot. The have-nots start to have less and less and less. And if it goes far enough, it means that the elite class will be dining on caviar and lobster and unbelievable steaks, and the poor people will be starving. And this tremendous economic dichotomy within a culture will eventually lead to revolution and to war. I remember giving a message in the early 80s. It was right when we had a new administration come in. There was great talk about prosperity. There was great talk for investment. And I remember giving a message from the book of Proverbs on God and Washington. And I had a whole lot highly involved in in the political scene at that time. And from the word of God, I stress, in the midst of prosperity, don't forget the poor. If you forget the health needs of the poor, if you forget the person that doesn't have landed wealth in your culture, if you just begin to focus just on making the big bucks, eventually it'll turn topsy-turvy and you'll lose it. 
And God's word tells us that we must be sure to work hard. The scripture teaches that if you do not work and you have a healthy body, you should not eat. But the Bible also tells us that as a people, as a church family, as individual families, then as a national family, we are in this together. We are not just independent entities that just have to take care of ourselves. One of the primary principles that Moses goes on to talk about is how to ensure that wealth does not become concentrated just in the few. That it be, is spread out among a population. You say, how did they do it under the Old Covenant? Look at it in chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require a payment from his fellow Israelite or brother. Notice his Israelite brother. Family relationship. Why? Because the Lord's time of canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, ideally, however, there should not be any poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God. And if only you are careful to follow all of these commandments that I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. Now, what's going on in this paragraph is, is very intensely debated in interpretation. Is it saying that every seven years they completely cancel debts? Or is it saying that in the seventh year, which was a year, if you know anything about the, the Old Testament economy of old Israel, you know that if you were a farmer, every seven years you were to leave your crops, your fields, unsown. Every seven years, you were to not plow your fields, you were to take a break, and you were to let the volunteer crop express itself. You would live off the volunteers of that seven years, and also all the poor people, the aliens, fatherless and widows, could all go throughout the fields, and they could harvest that seventh year of harvest. And that's the way the nation would sustain itself. Now, along those lines, one group of interpreters say that what was happening is in that seventh year, when a poor person was not able to sow their land, when they were not able to work in the fields, they would not be able to continue to make payments on their loan. So one interpretation is during that seventh year, they suspended payments for the seventh year. And you would be given that year of break. Don't you wish your banks would do that? Wouldn't that be great? Or your car loans would do that. Another interpretation is that based upon the next paragraph, which stresses the total release of a slave after seven years, following that principle of a total release, another group of interpreters say that the debt was completely canceled. In other words, every seven years in Israel, if you had loaned money to somebody and they had struggled to pay it back, it came down to the seventh year. In the seventh year, all of Israel was to cancel it. And then the writer is going to give us some instruction in the next paragraph about 
the difficulty of doing that and how it could influence lending to poor people, especially in the fifth or sixth year, when you knew just like that, you were going to have to redeem the debt and just let it go free. I'm not sure which way we should go on that. You can ask Moses. If we go home to be with the Lord during this day, you can talk to Moses and have him tell you exactly what he meant. A lot of this material is, is we don't understand all the customs. When they would read this material, they would understand it just like that. I'm leaning towards it was a total release of the dead. Because that's the feel of this passage. And I want you to notice something. It says that you are to release them of their debt. You shall not require a payment because the Lord's time for canceling debt has been proclaimed. Now, whose time is it? It's the Lord's time for canceling debt. Every one of you, as we go through this chapter, I want you to think about what kind of a person you are. Some of you are the kind of a person that you keep track of every single nickel and dime that you spend. You will lend money, but you're sure that you get the better end of the deal. You're very careful to guard yourself, and you are growing in your prosperity. But I want you to think about your heart. How do you feel about your wealth? How do you feel about what you're doing? How do you feel about those that are indebted to you? It's possible that a feeling starts to develop. I'm smarter than these other people. These people are dumb. They don't keep track of their finances. They don't realize the way interest works. Isn't it good that I've been able to work hard and be able to make this money? And that's why I'm prospering. That's what the book of 1 John calls the world, and it's the pride of life. It's the pride in thinking that we have done it, that we have it. And that leads to a lifestyle where you're very, very careful to make sure everything comes up fair. Some of you, as you listen, your life is about fairness. And so even when I talk to you, you mean to say, Dave, you really believe that every seven years that they just let the debts go? you got to be kidding me. I mean, somebody, you mean, someone's going to take advantage of that. I mean, my best friend's going to come to me the year before the release. They're going to have a great need. I'm going to have to meet their need. I'm going to end up just giving it to them. You think I'm going to do that? And God said, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the points. In fact, Jesus picks up on this in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says incredible statements like this. You know, don't be like the regular unbelieving people who when they give money to a debtor and the person owes them money, they know the person's going to pay them and they'll not only pay them, but they'll give them quite a bit of interest back. If you co-sign in a note for a young person and they pay you back and they even pay you more, in other words, they pay you the same interest that you would get from a bank, don't think that you've done anything marvelous before the Lord. Unbelievers do that all the time. The Lord said, you need to give to people, you need to lend to people when you know in your heart, I probably never will get it back. You say, Dave, you've got to be kidding. That's going to be crazy. I'm running at the heartbeat of God when I do that. You say, Dave, what in the world are you talking about? Yeah. You know why? Because my whole life has been received as a gracious gift from the Lord. I just suddenly arrived on the scene in 1949. I don't even remember the first couple years until a girl pushed me off a tricycle and broke my leg. 
And people graciously took care of me. My mother fed me. You know, they changed my diapers. I don't remember anything. I'm totally dependent upon their graciousness. And you always want to remember that when you have the audacious viewpoint in your heart that you have made it happen for yourself. That you have produced your own prosperity. I mean, all God has to do is just just pull a few little twangs inside your little pumper, inside your chest, you end up at Baylor, and they're going in there with all kinds of devices, and I haven't seen a guy yet that I have prayer with him before he has an angioplast, or they go in for a heart surgery, they say, man, I've got to be me on the operating table, and man, I'm going to muscle through this one, and boy, by my self-effort, I'm going to make it through. Man, they put the guy out like a light. It's totally dependent upon grace. The grace of the surgeon. Ultimately, the grace of the Lord God in heaven. You say, Dave, what does that have to do with releasing debts? When you understand that you've received everything as a gift, you don't have to hang on. One of your greatest kicks in life is just to release. Because you're a brother. Because it's a fellow Israelite. We certainly do need to treat our brothers the way that they should be treated. And this needs to impact even the way we treat one another economically. This is Dave Wurtson, and we're going to be continuing this study the next time we get together on debtors, slaves, and freedom. These old principles that are easy to lock back there in the law, underneath there's a heartbeat of generosity, of giving to one another, that we need to capture again in the New Testament body of Christ as well. I just want to express how thankful we are for the ways that so many in our Truth Encounter listening family are sharing with us and enabling us to be able to continue to have this time of dialogue and sharing with you on a regular basis. And Truth Encounter is supported as the Holy Spirit uses this teaching of the Word to touch your life and to help you in growing in intimacy with Jesus Christ. You make it possible. 